Welcome to the Orion Podcast, hosted by Jessa and Laurel of A Stellar Co., a podcast that connects you with the knowledge and resources you need to drive a more conscious form of capitalism. Orion starts now. Hey guys, this is just what, oh, hi. <laughs> Hello. Who's <laughs> our guest today? We have a Rachel Olney of Geosite. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you. We're really excited. Um, we we got in touch because we have a mutual contact um, at B Partners, the venture capital firm. Um, one of their members there is um, a family friend of mine, and we vacationed together, and he was wearing the Geosite sweatshirt to dinner one night. And I was like, tell me more. And so we spent our whole dinner talking about you. Yeah. <laughs> As a founder, finding out that your VCs wear your swag is, you know, apparently we picked good sweaters. <laughs> yeah. It was attractive to me. The logo was really, I was just, we were drinking martinis and I looked over and I was like, tell me about this. And then like, he was like, oh, like no. He was like, like it's your geo in it. It must be interesting. Yeah, it says geo and site. And then I remember Garrett mentioned, uh, he's like, oh, it's like the Google Drive of geospatial. And I was like, geospatial, let me tell you the bumps and the hurdles the environmental consulting industry goes through with our GIS um, provider. And he's like, oh, you just said a magic word. And then it went on from there. And like, we just kept going on and on and on. Um, And then uh, Jess and I met you and we're just like, oh, yeah. This is, this <laughs> we wanted to be part of our club. Yeah. We're gonna, like absorb her into the club. You're part <laughs> of our conscious constellation. Initiated. Yeah. <laughs> so as we were talking about backstage, I did prepare for this because I feel like the goal, because there's a lot of, there's some podcasts about you. There's a lot of amazing articles. And so I encourage people, as you see on, um, on the video here to go to your website and there's a press and a media page where you can read articles and listen to some of the oil and gas and technical podcasts that you're on. And so today with Orion, we thought we'd take Let's say quickly, let's just say it. it's geosite, G-E-O-S-I-T-E dot I-O. Mm-hmm. Go there. Thank you. An adventure. Uh, so I'm going to open Rachel. We're going to get down to it. You're a 27-year-old female founder and CEO of a tech startup in Silicon Valley. You founded Geosite two years ago. You built the team to over 15 people. You raised $1.7 million in investment and $1.8 million in revenue. You've received seed funding from the Y Combinator and have taken on venture capital. This means you've been in many rooms and points of negotiation with VCs, and I'm going to go ahead and assume that they're mostly white and mostly male and mostly older than you. <laughs> You're also working on your mechanical engineering PhD at Stanford University while raising two children, while running the geosite business. And yet with all of this boss energy, <laughs> all of that, there's a story on your press website from Crunchbase, and it says that you were looking at yourself in the reflection of your Palo Alto office windows. And you said, I just don't look like a CEO. So what superpowers <laughs> do you have that, that got you to be such a successful boss energy, powerful woman who knows what she wants? What are these superpowers that you can share with us? Yeah. I mean, so first I want to update your numbers. Uh, I, uh, I didn't catch those when I was, I was reviewing it. We're actually about to be 25 people. Uh, and in total, we've closed well over four million actually uh, in bookings. So, uh, grown quickly since whenever the fifteen was. Maybe that was like four months ago. Yeah, <laughs> That's awesome. it was not that long ago. Um, we are we are like jamming down on the gas pedal on on hiring because we we've been closing deals, which is fantastic. Um, you know, so I wrote that article. Crunchbase had reached out. You know, it was you know Women's History Month. And so what better to do for uh, founders that are already disadvantaged, but ask them to do more work, especially free work. Uh, and so they, they had reached out and said, can you write an article about what it's like being a female founder? And so I, you know, of course, am always happy to try to share, you know, my secret weapons with everybody. Um, 
And, you know, so I, I wrote up that article and, you know, that was a moment when we had, you know, just closed our seed round. We had just expanded to a bigger office. You know, we were hiring the team and I was cruising down the road in like this very, very girly, you know, red floral sundress, uh, you know, spaghetti straps, lots of flowers, you know, very flowy and cute. And, you know, I'm just like cruising down the sidewalk, like, oh yeah, we're running this company. We're doing these things. This is so exciting. I'm really excited about my team. And, uh, and yeah, I, I caught my reflection and I was just like, oh yeah, I don't look like a CEO. Um, and, you know, I think there are a couple pieces to this, you know, there's this perception, not only, you know, are there these, you know, uh, like bias against, against women and minorities. Um, but on top of that, there's this certain look that they expect from tech founders, you know, not somebody who curls their hair and does their makeup and like, you know, I am a, a technical, I have a technical background and, you know, if you've watched the the show Silicon Valley, like that's what they expect founders to look like: a nerd in a hoodie, um, not a nerd in a sundress. And so, um, you know, it <laughs> definitely, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I won't say that I'm not a nerd because that would be totally false. Um, so, you know, for me, the nice part is I I have enjoyed being who I am for a very long time. You know, and I think I hope everybody can can reach that level of feeling very comfortable in your own skin. Um, and that means even in, you know, grad school, when I was in engineering classes, I would show up and I'd be wearing super cute pumps and like, you know, a really fashionable outfit. And I was the only one in the room dressed like that. And so I think, you know, in becoming a founder, it wasn't the first time where I didn't look how people expected. Um, so it was less jarring. But I think also when you work on problems that you're deeply passionate about when you're in the moment you're not thinking about yourself at all you're like really focused on the problem and so most of the time when I find myself deeply engaged with what I'm doing I actually kind of take myself out of the equation there's almost like a, a distancing that happens because I'm hyper focused on the work and then sometimes the, it's those little moments where I'll take a step back and be like oh that probably looked hilarious from the outside like that was not what people expected um so I think that, you know, if you're working on problems you're highly focused on and, you know, you have been able to become very comfortable with who you are, um, you know, they they start to not conflict, even though every once in a while I have to remind myself, I don't look how somebody expects a, a founder to look. Um, and so what it means is you get better at things that, you know, I think I also laid this out in that article, like introducing yourself. Like, you know, if I walk into a room, nobody's going to expect that I run Geosite. Right. And so I have to show up and I have to actually say that right up front. And I have to like very explicitly lay out my qualifications. Um, and I didn't always do that. So there was once I was working with a special operations team and, you know, I show up and immediately I'm just like, how can I be helpful? Let me do these things. Let me do those things. Oh, we should do this, not that, you know, just jumping into the problem. And I kind of forgot, you know, I forgot myself in that situation. Like, how did I look to these, the rest of this, this team? And afterwards I got feedback from someone there and they were like, Hey, nobody trusted anything you were saying because you didn't tell them like, Hey, I'm getting a PhD in mechanical engineering at Stanford university. I know what I'm talking about when we talk about drones. Um, they're like, you should have started with that. <laughs> so, so that's the biggest secret weapon is tell people that you know what you're doing if they're not going to assume it. I think that's really good advice. I've been in some rooms before where um, some gentlemen have, have asked me to get them coffee when it's my meeting and it's my project and it's my company. And I'm, and I'm just a really helpful person. I'm not bothered by it. And I'm like, oh, absolutely. Get, I'll get you coffee. Um, and then when the meeting gets going and they realize that it's my, it's my meeting, it's my decision-making, you just feel the energy shift. And sometimes they're really embarrassed and then there's some people who just plainly don't care. Like it didn't even, didn't even think yeah. that. Well, <laughs> yeah. I would say like for this, I mean, I think it's really interesting because I have a little bit different perspective. First of all, I love people who are unexpected. I love people who look like a stereotype and then they turn out to be something completely different. It's like, that's who I'm attracted to. So I don't, I just love it. And, um, and so I feel like I'm a big person. My belief is like, I don't want to tell you that I know what I'm doing. I want to show you that I know what I'm doing. 
And so I feel like there's like that bias, which is exactly what you're talking about, that you walk in and people just look at you, assume you don't know what you're doing. And so now it's like on us to say, oh, I have to sit here and tell you that I'm qualified, show you my qualifications, and then you'll let me participate in the conversation. Yeah. Like I kind of have, I love the idea of you going in and telling, like showing everyone, talking on their level or probably well above their level and displaying your expertise and that you do know something that you are qualified to be there. And then I, you know, someone who's, I'm sure being helpful saying, Hey, you should let them know your qualifications. I'm like, didn't I just like prove it by coming in and like bringing the discussion? Yeah, it it is really frustrating that it's necessary, but I have noticed just such a huge difference. Um, it makes your life way yeah. easier. <laughs> totally. I just walk in and I'm like, hi, this is who I am. Here are all the things I've done. And then they're like, oh, okay. She like, it means like serious business. Yeah. Um, and, and that's really nice. Right. And then, and then I can actually just be me the rest of the time. Cause it's like, Hey, I've told you I'm highly qualified and that like, this is what I'm here to do. And this is what I care about. And then, you know, if I am, you know, all of Rachel, which includes flowery dresses and includes lipstick and includes like all these things. Um, I feel like it, it no longer is in contrast because it's just, Hey, this is me. And here are my qualifications. Well, I feel like that's part of your efficiency too, is you're like, <laughs> I'm not spending this time in this meeting trying to prove myself to you and that I yeah. know what I'm doing. I'm coming here to solve a problem. So let me just get this out of the way that I know what I'm doing. I'm qualified <laughs> to talk about it. All right, now let's solve the problem. <laughs> Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I know you guys, one of the things you loved, <laughs> you were like, we have to talk about is how obsessed with efficiency I am. I and yeah, that. yes, <laughs> that's, that's exactly it. You just get that stuff out of the way in the beginning. Um, you know, I, it's like very indelicate way of putting it, but it's like in a lot of these situations, the first few minutes are a little bit of like a pissing match of like, okay, who here is actually the one who knows what's going on and is going to be like the decision maker in the room. Um, and so I like to just like rip that bandaid off in the beginning, like, Hey, these are the things that I know better than anybody else here. And that's why I'm here. And I will serve as that expert. Um, so yeah. I love that. that. There, I'm on board with that approach. <laughs> yeah, I think Jessica Jessica loves to surprise. The, the surprise, like she yeah. wants to like undersell and then like shock everyone. But sometimes like, they oh, won't. Oh, by the way, I'm a total boss, and I did all. Sometimes of they won't give you the opportunity to do that. So, like in in a lot of the meetings I'm in, you know, VCs have made their decision a couple minutes into the meeting, and you know right away either they're engaging and they have questions. Or they've checked out and they just let you talk and they like sit there and nod um, and they're just, you know, being polite. They're not actually engaging. And so, you know, it's always fun to surprise people. Like I always enjoyed uh, when I was doing my PhD, most of my work was in the Pentagon and, you know, I'd be dressed super cute. Like I, you know, I had these like gold, these rose gold pumps that I loved Uh, back then they were very, you know, in style and I'd be wearing like a cute, you know, dress and everything. And you know, I'd walk in the room and people would be like, I don't know, it's whatever. And then, you know, I, I was in this with this team who was doing this highly technical work and they were like struggling to figure out a question. And I was there just as an observer. Um, and I was like, oh, hey, actually, here, give me the engineering drawings. And I like marked them up and was like, here you go. This will work. And they were all just like blown away. And like, <laughs> don't get me wrong. Sometimes that is so fun. Uh, but, you know because bias is real and because there are times when it doesn't work, you have to have like a toolkit of a lot of different things. Um, Otherwise it just won't work, but it also acts as a great weeding out. So when I first started Geosite, one of my classmates at Stanford was helping me do market research. And he was a, you know, six foot four, probably 300 pounds of muscle, you know, Navy SEAL, right? Active duty. So he was headed back in to be a SEAL. Um, This very like intimidating looking dude. Right. And, you know, I'm founder CEO of the company. He, you know, was going to go back to the Navy. So had no decision-making authority whatsoever. And we'd go to these meetings with these investors and they would just position themselves towards him and completely ignore me. And then we'd get to a point in the conversation where they'd ask a question and he'd be like, Oh, well, Rachel's the boss. Like she gets to make all the decisions. And he would just say it like that because he enjoyed watching the look on their face. And both of us would just walk out like suckers. Like they totally <laughs> got, they, they failed the quiz, right? They My like favorite story 
we shared that when we first met and I was like, I love you. I love you did that. <laughs> this is probably a terrible yeah. metaphor, but this always reminds me of, which, of like the pretty woman moment where she walks into the store and like, they don't think she has any money. I feel like this is like every girl, well, probably my age, who like, it was like their dream to like walk in and have them be like, oh, you don't belong here. And then she comes back, big mistake. <laughs> yeah. So this is huge. I have one of those elevated level. <laughs> I, had, I had one of those moments uh, recently. I was on the phone with somebody and I told him about my primary job. And, and he literally said, why did they hire you? And I said, well, I'm the expert. And he laughed. <laughs> I overheard Laurel on the other end of this call. And I was like, sit back. I was like, oh, this guy's in for it. And I hear Laurel be like, well, I'm an expert in sustainability. And she went through <laughs> all her credentials and why she's qualified to do it. And then you yeah. could just hear the guy, because it was a video call, be like, oh, oh. And he just, it just clicked. And this is after like an hour. I'm like, <laughs> Laurel put him in his place. I loved it. It was, it was fun. And it's even more fun when you do it with grace and dignity. Like I used to, I used to not have any patience with people and it would come across pretty pedantic and probably rude, uh, the way that I would like correct them. And then it's, it's more fun, like your style where you just kind of like, let, just let it happen. See what happens. Yeah. I actually like, I'm getting a PhD from Stanford. It's (laughs) a big deal. Have you heard of it? Have you heard of Stanford? (laughs) Not like I'm actually like an expert in this, but you know, like is my PhD on. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like you have to have fun with it, otherwise it's so like crushingly exhausting. And sometimes it is crushingly exhausting, but for the most part, I'm like, you know what? I am going to derive some sort of joy from this situation uh, because you might as well, right? It, so. That's a little, it's a moment that you, it was an opportunity and every, all those little opportunities, those are so fun. And so you mentioned about like, okay, let's be efficient. I'm going to cut right to the chase. This is why I'm qualified to be here. I'm the boss. This is what's happening. As a founder and CEO, what are some of the other things that you just cannot be bothered with that you're just like, I'm going to be efficient and just get down to the point that you think that other entrepreneurs don't do? Mm-hmm. I think I see a lot of founders get distracted by their competitors. Um, So I know some founders that like they will follow every piece of news and every single thing. They're like obsessed with their competitors. And I think it's good to like understand what's going on with your competitors. And there are a couple people on my team who like, I'm like, hey, specifically keep an eye out for what they're doing because I'm curious. Um, But I really don't spend a lot of time on our competition. I think with what we're doing and with what a lot of founders build, you know, time is of the essence. And if you're sitting around worrying about what they're doing, I think you're already behind, right? And so for us, because we're hyper-focused on what our customers need and we're hyper-focused on what technology is hitting the market, you know, and we're not dwelling on what are other people doing. We're just doing what we think is best. I think that that makes us a lot more efficient. Um, you know, and sometimes we'll look over and we'll be like, oh, they're doing something cool. Maybe we should consider that. Or like, oh, we know that that's the wrong answer because we're spending more time with our customers rather than looking internally at the industry. And so because we have a better understanding of the customers, we're able to launch faster and better. Um And so that's one where I see people, I think, not just in terms of time, but in terms of just like emotional bandwidth, Um, you can let those things be really, really draining um, rather than just just staying focused on your own product. So that's that's definitely one of them. I think that the other thing that makes, you know, makes me efficient is I try not to reinvent the wheel anywhere that I possibly can. Like, it doesn't matter what it is. I mean, you know, Garrett, like I reach out to him and I'll be like, Hey, how do people do pay structure for this? And he's like, uh, let me ask around. And I'm like, great. And then I'll like go to somebody else and I'll be like, Hey, how do you do this kind of like a uh, government proposal? And I'm like constantly making other people tell me how to do things. Um, and of course, then once I've gathered that advice, I'll like, think about it and I'll be like, is this how we want to do it? Yes or no. Right. But it at least gives me a start point. Um, I think it's easy to think that you know, your job as a CEO is to come up with everything. And I would say your job is almost to come up with nothing. Your entire job is to just like gather information and then pick the best answer and maybe adapt it if needed and then keep sprinting um, on on anything you can. Like I, there's no reason for us to reinvent how HR is done, right? Like there are so many things that like are outside of what makes us competitive. And for all of those, like 
have somebody else figure it out. Agreed. As some of my favorite CEOs, I think, I think a characteristic of a great leader CEO specifically is one that obviously picks everyone that's smarter than them to play a role they're meant to play yeah. so that they shine in their fullest expression totally. of themselves. And then they, and then the CEO themselves has the humility to come up to the other person and be like, I don't know what I'm talking about. I think you do. Hey, we solve this for me. Yeah. And then come back to me. And then, and then that CEO goes, okay, decision made. So yeah. like, that's what I love is, is when the efficiency of it is like, okay, I've taken the appropriate time yeah. to gather information from everybody that knows more than me and decision has been made. Yay. And everybody goes, thank you. And then they go do the thing. <laughs> it's beautiful. Yeah, exactly. Like I, the other day, um, I was like scrolling through Twitter. Something was happening in, in national security that, you know, is like outside of the things that I grasp about geopolitics. And, um, I like all of a sudden realized I was really overwhelmed by the fact that I will not, there's so much that I will never understand. Like, and I think that accepting that is really important. And still every once in a while it hits me. I'm like, I know such a narrow slice of the world and technology and, you know, technology and national security, which are like my, that's where my expertise is. Right. And even in those fields, I'm like, I know such a narrow slice. Um, and so yeah, as as uh, as a CEO, my entire job is to be like you. You know way more about environmental regulations than anybody on our team. Hey, Laurel, how do we do this? Uh, like, and then you know, Burke. It's like, hey, Burke, we need to analyze all of these. He's our our data science lead. You know, we need to analyze all of these different methane sources. Like, tell me, like, go look at all of them and then tell me which one is the best. Um, because it's you have to trust people with more expertise. Um, and, you know, if I'm having to come up with something uh, from scratch, usually I'm like, okay, we need to hire somebody who is better at this than I am. Uh, and that's my whole job is like, anytime I'm having to fill a gap, uh, we need to go find somebody who's even better at it. Um, and so that's, that's how we hire. Well, this is your whole thing, which I love is the efficiency is there's no, like you said, no need to reinvent the wheel. Someone else has already done it. They've probably done it better. You know, when we're talking especially about like HR and like not your core service or competency with the business. And so you can get things done so much faster. And I think, you know, making decisions as a CEO, I remember like Harvard Business Review had this study of like the top four or top four traits of successful CEOs. And one of them was making decisions quickly. It's like, it's better to make a wrong decision than to not make a decision at all. Yeah. And so I think that's just a really good, um, like in the context of how you presented it and advice is really important to remember because so many people I think are afraid of making the wrong decision or collecting every single data point before making a decision. And yeah. it's just like, you can change for the most part, nothing set in stone. Like <laughs> there was this, this woman that I knew, this officer in the Coast Guard, um, and she, she had this like brilliant saying, um, and she was like, don't be the suicide squirrel. She was like, you're like at many points in your life, you're the squirrel in the middle of the road. It doesn't matter which side of the road you go to, but if you just stand there, you're going to get hit by a car. And so every once in a while, when I am hesitating on a decision, I'll be like, don't be the suicide squirrel. Just make a decision and keep moving um, and make a decision that will help you gain more information so you can make a better decision in the future, but like make a decision and keep moving. So I always, I always think of that in my head. I'm like, don't be the squirrel in the middle of the road. Like don't do I that. Love it. <laughs> Yeah. squirrel. <laughs> that, and also like, don't be the, the distracted squirrel. Squirrel. Um, as you mentioned earlier about um, getting distracted by your competition, there's yeah. so many other things to get distracted by. I mean, that's why a stellar co exists. We, we love to help people declutter and get real focus on what's the most meaningful and important to them. And, and then they like really shine. Like, and mm -hmm. it feels so good to watch people, who get that flow and that focus, how they just like expand their capabilities and their capacity. It's yeah. fascinating. I, you know, I have a question about your background personally. Uh, was there a point in time where you're like, oh, I'm capable of so much. I'm going to have to plan. <laughs> um, I have always been a planner. Um, like, I think it's just who I am. I think there are 
So there are two stories that I want to tell. So the first is uh, like much earlier in my life. And then one is a little bit more recent. So the first one is when I was 16, um, I was, you know, sitting there with my sister and, you know, we were joking around. My sister's like my best friend in the world. Um, And we're sitting there and, you know, we're predicting each other's future. And I'm like, okay, this is where you will be 20 years from now. Uh, And for me, you know, I've always been, always been a nerd, right? Like, I love school. I love learning. I was like that kid that like petitioned the school board to let me take university courses instead of high school courses, like that level of nerd. Um, And my sister was like, okay, you're living in like a beautiful condo, like in some large tower in a big city. And, you know, you show up for the holidays and you're the cool aunt who brings everybody all these really nice presents. And she's like, you know, and I'm like, well, do I have kids? Do I have a family? Do I any of that? And she was like, no, you don't have time for it. I was like, oh, interesting. Um, And what was really fascinating about that conversation was I like realized like, no, 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 I do want all those things, but I really want to do the work stuff. Like I love work. And uh, my mom who has two engineering degrees, um, you know, I think she really had to scale back her career for us kids. And I was always terrified of that, um, you know, having to scale back my career. And, and like you mentioned at the top, I have two kids, right? And so for me, I, I knew I wanted to have my kids while I was in school. That seemed like the best option. Very unconventional. Like, can we just pause on that for a second? I decided I wanted to have kids in school. <laughs> yeah. I was like, it'll do less damage to my career if I have my kids while I'm in school. It did work out that way, right? Like, it, it worked out um, that, you know, when you're in school, you can take time off and then you come back and you're exactly where you started. Nothing happened without you because it's the same courses every year, year after year. And so you can take that time and and it it worked out for me. I don't recommend it for everybody. Uh, it's, you know, we it, it can get dicey. It's super tough. Um, but yeah, so that was a moment when I realized like, okay, I need a long-term plan. If I want to do all these things, I need to know, you know, how I'm going to fit it all in, right? And so I, I decided to start my family very, very early. Um, and then, you know, I've always you know, I had a great advisor in undergrad um, who always said, you know, you should like life is like climbing a mountain. Like you can see the top of the mountain and you can see like a hundred yards around you maybe. And so that's how you should plan your life. Like, you know what these big things are that you really care about and that you really want to accomplish. And you know what maybe your next, you know, half mile looks like. Uh, But trying to plan every step in between is really difficult. Um, And so, you know, I've always kind of ascribed to that level of planning. Like, I know what we're doing with Geosite. I'm really excited about the future for Geosite. I don't know what's going to come after Geosite, right? Geosite is probably the next decade of my life. Um, But I, I trust that whatever's next will be awesome. But I do know where the top of the mountain is for me too. Like, I know what are the things that I care about enough to work on for the rest of my life. Um, Oh, tell you? (laughs) Yeah. Well, this is about ambition. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm really excited right now. I've always said, uh, you know, partially jokingly, because I'm not hundred percent certain I want the job, but the job would allow me to work on the problems that I care about. I've always said, I hope I'm not the first, you know, female secretary of defense. Like, and it looks like we might get Michelle Flournoy right now. It's like, it's, they're still testing the waters. It hasn't been officially announced yet, but it's seeming like it. You know, I've met her a couple of times and she's extraordinary. Um, she would be a wonderful secretary of defense. But anyway, so I care deeply about national security. So that's, that's always going to be, you know, the top of the mountain for me. I think specifically, I care a lot about the economics of national security. I care a lot about how our national security complex interacts with the commercial world. I think there are a lot, there's a lot of work to be done there. Um, And then on top of that, because in my master's I studied manufacturing, I care a lot about U.S.-Chinese relations. So I speak Mandarin. I've spent time there. I like, I really, really, really want us to be able to avoid a major conflict with China, right? And I think that a lot of conflicts come from miscommunication. And so you know, my, those are the, those are the big rocks, right? Like those are the things that I really want to work on. Um, and I'm doing that through Geosite and I'll do that through whatever work I do in the future. Yeah. I can see that. I, I, I love it. I can absolutely see that. And I think that some, uh, people, not just women, some men are, are super boxed in 
uh, when they're youthful and they're young. Yeah. I mean, we used to joke, I'm going to be the first female president. I mean, my grandpa wanted me to be a nun. Yeah. You know, like everybody wants something for you. And, and I was like, yeah. I always had this boss energy of bossing people around, telling them what to do, like always seeing the steps and like, I can visualize yeah. the outcome and I know exactly what needs to happen to get to that outcome, but yeah. people don't want to be told. <laughs> yeah. I love the, the mountaintop analogy. Cause yeah. it's like, I think I'm the opposite where I'm like, I know the mountains and I know that next, like you said, like that next half mile, but everything between I'm like, I don't know. We'll figure it out when we get there. Well, like, and like what I've learned is even if you try to plan it, it ends up changing. I didn't think right. I wanted to get a master's and here I am getting a PhD, right? Like you, you don't know. I think it's so much more important to focus on like, what are the problems that you want to solve? Um, so even like, that's what I've switched to like talking to my kids about is like, Hey, what are the problems you care about in the world? What are the problems that you want to work on? Because I think there are so, I mean, you guys both do this. I mean, I know you guys are both multifaceted. You pick the problem that you care about. And then there are so many ways of working on it. You know, I could work on it from the government side. I could work on it from the commercial side. I could work on it from academia. Like there's so much opportunity once you've found what the problem is that you want to work on. But um, it was the way you asked the question earlier, Laurel brought another story to mind when you were like, what was that moment when you realized like, I'm badass and I could do all the things. Um, you know, this is kind of a funny story because I think I've always been a little bit blindly, uh, like optimistic about what I can do. I'm just like, yeah, of course I can do this. Like I'm unintimidatable is the way I explain it. Like I'll walk into a room and it's like a whole bunch of generals. And I'm like, do you even know what you mean when you say AI? I don't think you understand. Like, can we talk about that? Like, <laughs> Let me explain it. And like that a little bit. You're saying that, but I don't think you know what that word means. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Like things don't scare me <laughs> very easily. But the one time when I actually got really freaked out was so I I had decided I really wanted to do my PhD because I was excited about the problem I was looking at, right? So I was looking at how do you run engineering teams inside of a bureaucracy, inside of a hierarchy? And I thought, you know, a lot of people think like, if you want innovation, you can't have bureaucracy. And I'm like, that's an oversimplification. And I, I know that that's an oversimplification. I want to study this and I want to prove like how these two things actually interact. And um, so, you know, I, I was determined to do it. I applied to the PhD program um, in the management science and engineering department. So there's a an entire department at Stanford that's focused on the construction and managing of innovation, right? Like that's part of why Stanford is so good at these things. We study it. And I got, I didn't get selected for the PhD program. And I was really upset and I was like, well, I guess I don't get to work on this. And I was like, but I really wanted to. So I was like, well, I guess I'll talk to the Center for Design Research uh, in the Mechanical Engineering Department and see if they would pick up the research and let me do it there. And, you know, I, I thought this is totally a long shot. It's, you know, luckily I'll be able to get through all the academic work. My background is already mechanical engineering. I'll have to do mechanical engineering quals, but that's okay because I love mechanical engineering. Um but then my research will really kind of sit in this other department and, and they accepted it. They like let me into the PhD program. And I had this like, it was like one of the few times I had like an actual panic attack. Cause I was just like, oh my gosh, there is no excuse not to get things done. There's like literally no excuse. Like this was something and I wanted to do it. And they said, no. And I said, uh, I don't accept that answer. I'm going to keep trying. And then I got to a yes, and I was just like, all right. So now if I ever fail, it's completely on me because it's always possible to get to, you know, to work on these things. And so I yeah. feel I feel strongly that's mother energy. Like as females, we're just hyper creative. I mean, we can create life, we can co-create life, <laughs> and we create our yeah. own magic. And, and so when you say there's literally nothing to yeah. stop us. You're an alchemist. You're yeah. a little witchy, witchy woman who's just making things happen and yeah. creating creating your world. Uh, that's what so that's what ambition means to me. Like when I listen to you, I just see um, infinite possibilities and creativity. And when you when I would say normal other people, other lay people might think of engineers, mechanical engineers in a particular box. 
I know I did. I would definitely like look at engineers on my team and be like, oh, this communication is going to, this is going to be tough with you. And it's not, if you switch yeah. your perspective, engineers are creators. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hyper creative, creative geniuses. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then, yeah, like the entrepreneurial side too. I think that's like such a critical component of entrepreneurship is not taking no for an answer or when you hit a roadblock is thinking like you said all like creatively about another alternative and yeah. to get what you're trying to do. And I, I think I love the advice too of thinking about the problem you're solving in the world. And, you know, we talk about like your purpose and cause there's so many business owners who are like, I just want to make money. I want to make money and not necessarily in a greedy way, but just that they want stability. And so you really have to dig like that's not enough to motivate your employees. That's not enough to get funding. Like, you know, like you have to have that real why. And something you said earlier, I had a question and I totally lost my train of thought about it, but, oh, I know what it was. As you're talking about all this, you know, and not being intimidated and like there's, a, it comes with a level of confidence. And so I'm wondering what you attribute that confidence to, to go out and, solve these problems to walk into these rooms. I mean, some of it comes with experience, but you started somewhere. Yeah. I mean, expertise. Like, I think I know what it feels like to be an expert. And so when I know that I know something, like, I really know that I know what I'm talking about. So back to like earlier when we were talking about um, finding other experts who know things better than I do. I like, I absolutely am the first to admit when I don't know something, I'm like, I don't know how to do this. Like, please help me. Uh, but when I do know something, I like, I know that I probably know whatever it is that I'm the expert at better than anybody in the room, right? And so that confidence comes from knowing what it feels like to be an expert. And I think that's one of the values of, you know, having gotten a bachelor's and a master's and a PhD, right? Like I, I know, like I have expertise in domains that are like completely irrelevant to what I do. Uh, like I know so much about like material science and manufacturing and like nothing geocide does is material science or manufacturing. But it means when I turn to the geocide engineers, I'm like, I don't know anything about, you know, our software architecture. I trust you to figure that out because I know what it feels like to be an engineering expert. And I know as a fact, I'm not an expert on that. But when I walk into the room and I'm like, hey, here are how these technologies apply to national security. I also know I'm absolutely an expert at that. Um, and so I think it's being able to, you know, that confidence just comes from expertise, like yes, experience, but, but really just like having deep expertise in things and knowing that like, hey, I have done my homework. I have put in the time. I know exactly how to explain this. Um, yeah. Well, have you always felt like that though? Or do you feel like that has you grown more confident with the level of education and you said like the research and the homework literally that you've done to get yeah. here? And I, I feel like it, it sounds like you always had that though. Like it didn't, like it's grown with time, but it's come from somewhere. Yeah. I would say the number of things that I would count myself as an expert in have grown over time, right? <laughs> like I would say, uh, going through school, I was the expert among my friends on what it was like to have children. And I still am. And all my friends, as they like start to have kids, I'm the expert that they reach out to. Right. So I would say like over time, you can build all of these different expertise. Um, but if you're just somebody who, you know, you're like, Oh, maybe I don't have deep expertise in something, pick something you love and then just become obsessed with it. And like, yeah. I mean, it's down to like the fact that even my outlets for me include like my Instagram. It's like, Oh, I follow all these like manufacturing Instagram like accounts. Like who does that? Like that is like, that, like I'm like, Oh, that's how they made those paper cups. That's fascinating. Right. And like, for me, like I just, or I'll like pick something up and I'll be like, wait, how did they do that? And then I like look it up. Right. And so it's really just about finding things that you love so much that, you, you know, you can't help but become an expert at it because you just want that's, to, yeah. That's Angela Duckworth's whole premise about being a genius is the grit. And yeah. people have, they might not have the highest IQ. They might not be hyper intelligent, creative geniuses. Yeah. But if they're interested in it, that's all the motivation that it takes. Oh, absolutely. And then tenacity in the pursuit of it. Yeah. Like one of the things Stanford definitely taught me is I am not a genius. Like 
I, you know, it, it didn't help that I grew up in Southern New Mexico. And so like my fundamentals were weak, uh, but getting to Stanford definitely was a very humbling experience. Uh, when you watch your classmates just like understand stuff immediately and you're like, oh yeah, I don't understand what's going on. Um, and, and that, and that takes time. And my whole team still makes fun of me because they're like, yeah, but have you seen Rachel try to do math? And I'm like, hey guys, hey. <laughs> math not a strong suit? Oh my gosh, no. What? Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's um I have to put a ton of work in to do math well at all. Um, however, my like visual and like um visuospatial reasoning is fantastic, which is I think why I run the company idea, right? Like I'm like, okay, how do we take these things that are happening out in the real world and then communicate it to a user through a 2D screen, through some sort of visualizations and workflows? And like I can picture the whole thing. Um, you know, and I can map it all out in my head. But if somebody was like, hey, can you do this differential equation? I would just be like, no, find somebody else. <laughs> I hired you to do it. <laughs> but that's my expertise. Like, uh, let's ask the data scientists. They'll figure it out. Like <laughs> The fact that you can see all that, that's why I feel, I feel like you're an alchemist slash magician because that, that to me earlier, our earlier question was like, what's your superpower? And yeah. if we dig, I, when we dig a little bit deeper, I think it's being able to envision and imagine in that clarity and then allowing it to happen and not allowing anything else to get in the way. Yeah, totally. I think like the ability to like picture process and complex interrelationships. That's why I love bureaucracy, right? Like I was like, bureaucracy is a set of procedures that have a bunch of interdependencies, right? And you're just like, okay, there's no way that these interdependencies are messing with these processes. And so like, let's deconflict them and figure out how to do this, you know, in some way. Um, and it's the same with everything we do, right? Like if it's tracking methane, it's the same thing. It's like, okay, we have these ground sensors, we have these like this space data, this provides this information, this provides this information, these people need to do these things. And then here's the mitigation efforts. And then here is all of this stuff that needs to happen. And it's like, I can map it all out. Um, but, but any of the expertise will execute it. That's why that's your conscious constellation. That's what we think. We think in constellations and nothing that any of us does, but affects us all. It's all related. And I, I know you're in mechanical engineering and geospatial and you're going to be secretary of defense and like, in like, I don't know. We undecided on whether that's what I want, but I will help prevent, like, I will ensure that our military has the best technology in the world from whichever and, position I'm in. And I think the, <laughs> the value add there is like really looking into that mother creative energy because nature has figured out extremely complex uh, s- systems and symbiosis, symbiosis and communication networks that have lasted 2 billion years. And if our bureaucracy and our government was set up like bees or ants or termites in the way that they communicate and create, like they don't, there's no waste. They look at waste as an opportunity. There is no such thing as waste. Yeah. And so when I think of like Rachel on the top of the mountain solving the world's problems, it's, it's you like with the system like efficiency we are gonna have peak efficiency (laughs) no negative externalities only (laughs) positive things happening in the economy that's what that's my vision (laughs) it's not a bad one you know um and really it's uh well in bureaucracy at least now i'm like picturing like the whole of government stuff it's all about incentives um that's always the mechanism people forget so Mm. What are the incentives? I would I would say in in super organisms and complex systems in nature, the incentives is not just survival but compounding value. And yeah. I think that if we were to apply that to our economy in America and in the global economy, obviously where we were all compounding value for each other and not wasting anything, we'd be like, well, I, we'd probably like not exist anymore because we'd like achieve enlightenment or something. <laughs> Well, I'm not an economist, so that's probably a little bit broad. But what I could talk about is like within bureaucracies, like, you know, like you mentioned, the entire, the incentive is survival. If you're, if you've decided that your team is irrelevant uh, and your, or pieces of your team are irrelevant or wasteful and you're shutting them down, you're making your team smaller, which means that like your job gets smaller and like your budget gets smaller. And so when it comes to government, the only way 
to like grow or, or show progress is through increased cost and increased headcount. Um, and like, that's, that's like the key problem there is it's like, no, 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 no. Like we, you have to be working towards the overall goal of national security in one, one sense or another, rather than the goal of making your team, the biggest team with the biggest budget, uh, which of course is, is the goal in a lot of these organizations in government and outside government. They're like, well, we have to make sure our team is successful uh, rather than, than the incentives being set up for making the entire organization successful. Um, yeah. I like that whole systems thinking like it's a beehive. Yeah. Um, I, get, I think about this all the time with the budget and it drives me crazy that the people, and I think I'm thinking government particularly where like, you know, the end of fiscal year, like September, everyone's like selling themselves to the government. You have to to use up all your budget. Yeah. And it, cause if you don't use your budget, you don't get as much next year, but it's like, well, you don't need as much next year. Yeah. And I, I just like, and I think about this all the time. I'm like, what's the solution? What do you do? Like you said, companies do it too. And I'm just, I don't understand it. And I don't understand it. I think because like you said, it's not, or Laurel, maybe you said it's like, it's not systems based because you're just thinking inside your own team and your own box and not how your actions impact everything else around you. So what's the solution? (laughs) Well, so the Air Force has done a couple interesting things. I don't remember the name of the program, but I remember they, um, they actually incentivized program offices to save money. They basically said, hey, if you manage to save money on your program, here are like the benefits to the rest of your team. Um, And so they tried to start to like disrupt that. Um, I think for me, I'm big on like, you know, free market economics. Uh, And I think that that gets broken a lot of the time in government um, and especially in defense contracting. And so to me, I'm always like, hey, distribute the budget lower, like have great data standards and great like procedures and process and, you know, all of all the stuff that you see done well in manufacturing. Um, And then everything else becomes interchangeable. And so what you can do is, you know, instead of having an organization have a budget, you have like, you know, whole of department budgets that then you are actually empowering end users to make purchases and you're empowering like the people who actually need access to resources to uh, purchase things. And rather than like a program manager making all those decisions in order to eat up all their budget. Um, And then it starts to look more like, you know, any other piece of the economy that we see where you see actually, you know, better technology, you see, you know, less waste, um, you know, all of these other things than when you try to like top down an entire budget. So you know, there, there are programs springing up, but we just need them to scale. Yeah. I love that. Thanks for that insight. Yeah. Speaking of uh, the air force and government contracting, geosite recently was awarded a $950 million ceiling indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contract or IDIQ contract with air force. Yeah. First, first, congratulations. Thank you. That's a big deal for, for those that are listening that don't get it. It's, um, it's very, very challenging and time-consuming to put a bid package together, let alone win. And it's very competitive, and this is a very large ceiling. Um, and I've participated in many IDIQ bids. I've won a few, mostly on the construction side. So, like, how do we construct capital improvement program projects to be environmentally compliant and so on and so forth. And that's pretty straightforward. So I have no idea what your contract means. The joint all domain command and control contract. I imagine our listeners don't either. So in layperson's terms, tell us, tell us what that is and why you're so proud as a leader to say that you've achieved this. Yeah. So the joint all domain command and control system is, you know, in, in the most simple terms, is the DOD trying to leverage IoT is the way I would explain it. So it's a everything is connected to Internet of Things. Like a everything is connected to everything else. And, you know, if you're person A, you can use, um, you know, data source C, right? And like you can do all of this, you know, mixing of data and actions and things like that rather than, oh, only specific systems have access to specific data and only specific systems can talk to other systems. Um, So it's them basically trying to, so joint means all of the forces. So Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, um, Space Force too now. Um, So all of the forces 
is joint. That's what joint means. And then all domain, a domain is like land, sea, air, space. Um, and then command and control is what you do when you're waging warfare, right? So you are, you have, um, you know, commanders in content and, or intent, and then you have control over, you know, your weapons systems. So joint all domain command and control is basically like, how do we create a umbrella weapons system that can actually connect Every sensor to every shooter, I think, is the way Mattis put it when they when they first launched the the program. Um, and so, you know, Geosite is is added to this program. Um, we're not the only company on it, of course. Um, but the reason I'm so proud is so there are a couple. Um, I'll say there's three. So the first one is there's probably like a thousand, but I'll give you guys like three. Uh, so. The, the first one is, I mean, Geosite did its first government contract in early 2019. Um, so in less than two years, we went from doing, you know, small business innovation research grants um, to getting put on our first program of record. That is extraordinary. Um, like I studied defense innovation uh, and I am you know, somebody who writes about defense innovation and writes about acquisitions reform. And like, I care, like, this is a domain I care a lot about. And for a startup, you know, separating myself from it, but for a, for a startup to go from working to, with government to getting on a program of record in less than two years is exceptional. Uh, and I mean that in terms of like, it is an exception to the rule. There's like maybe a hand, like maybe like two or three that have done it. Um, I know. Yay! <laughs> of course, of course, like the part of the reason I started Geosite is because I knew that we could do this better than anybody else. I was like, hey, I know everything about how all of these systems work. So we can actually like go in and win. Um, right. And so we went into it with a competitive advantage. It wasn't something that um we could have just magically done. Um, and then of course there's tailwinds on the side of acquisitions reform. There are tons of contracting officers that are doing a ton of work to to actually change these systems. And we couldn't have done it if they hadn't been going through those reforms. Um, so that's the first piece is it's just, it's so exciting um, because it's it's unusual to have done in less than two years. The next piece is like, I didn't actually write any of the proposal, right? So I skimmed it at the end. That was my role in writing that proposal. And to me, that's just like shows so much like maturity in terms of our team's growth. You know, our federal lead, he, you know, was a Top Gun pilot, flies F-18 still on the side um, in the reserves. And he did that entire proposal, right? Like he worked with other people on our team to work on it. But, you know, he started at Geosite in October of 2019. And so he's been with the company a little bit over a year. And, you know, he was able to put together this proposal because, you know, our, because of the way our team functions, because like I, you know, because we, we trust people with a lot of responsibility and we trust them to do their jobs. And so they grow very quickly because they have no choice. Um, you know, and so I'm really, really, really proud of, of our team's growth towards that. And then the last part is, you know, I'm really excited that we get to put a ton of pressure on these other primes, right? Like, we're on there with people like Northrop and Microsoft and, you know, Palantir and all of these other organizations that I am so excited to be put on the playing field with. Um, because my thing has always been just like, put me on the playing field. If you put me on the playing field, I will kick butt. But like, if you don't put me on the playing field, I, I can't do anything. Um, and so we're really excited to actually go in and, and really compete with these other people on the, on the contract. Yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, <laughs> that's awesome. Congratulations. I love hearing you talk about it, like the passion I'm and pride. So excited. It's so and fun. I mean, this is why I started Geosite. I started Geosite because I was upset that like these, the special operations team I was working with didn't have access to satellite imagery. I was like, how do you not have access to this data? And you're going on this mission and you guys have a casualty because you don't have the data. Right. And so this whole, like every sensor to every shooter problem is the problem that was keeping me up at night. It's the problem that I wanted to solve. Um, and so it's, it's so exciting. I love that like 53 minutes into our podcast, we finally explained the purpose and mission of Geosite. <laughs> I was just thinking that. I was like, I don't know. I was about to ask Geosite does. Um, we yeah. aggregate <laughs> simple data and we make it accessible to non-technical users. 
there you have it. Spatial data is like satellite imagery, drones, IoT data, you name it. And I can I can vouch as a customer of Geosite. Um, <laughs> in, in the environmental industry, having access to daily and monthly satellite imagery, it streamlines our, it reduces our liabilities because it's like you've got eyes on the ground, which I don't know what my life was like before Geosite and I can never live without it ever again in the environmental industry because now I know too much. I now know all the things. And it always frustrated me that everything that I was using to communicate liabilities and opportunities to developers and to the government was based on like flat dated imagery when the environment is so dynamic and the dynamicism of that isn't coming through. And so your liabilities can be greater than they actually are, or you can not predict one is coming. And when we have geosite, it's very clear that a wildfire was over there and not over here. It was very clear where this habitat is and it's not over there. And it just has made communicating and explaining very complicated things very simply. And that is my plug for geosite. Yeah. I'm not a defense contractor. I don't work at the government, but from like a land development side, it is incredible. Thank you for bringing it forward to us and and bringing it to, to my industry. Yeah. I mean, there have been so many industries we didn't expect, right? Like we had somebody write us an email once and he was like, Hey, there was a tornado in Kentucky. I'm currently in Colorado. I think it might've hit my ranch. Do you guys have data? And we were like, probably. And we were able to pull it up and you were able to see the exact trace of the tornado. And he was able to see that like, yes, it hit parts of his ranch and he was able to send people out there and all this stuff. And it's just like, there's so much data out there that is completely inaccessible to the average person. And it's really exciting. I I still remember Laurel when you emailed me and you were like, oh my gosh, guys, we were able to track this wildfire to see where it went and like what happened with it and all this stuff. And um, that was, I mean, it's so exciting for us. Yes. Thank you. It, it yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so what, what are some of the other things you've worked on? Um, you know, with Geosite, COVID happened. That's a thing. Um, I know that you're engaged in that process. Explain a couple more little projects that Geosite's used for. Yeah. So, so the really awesome thing about our platform is from the very early days, the vision was if there is data that has a latitude and longitude or it has a place where it is relevant, I want us to be able to ingest it. Right. And so we set up everything to where we were like, it doesn't matter what kind of data it is. If it has a location, we want to be able to like actually translate it to users. So when COVID hit, you know, I reached out to, I had heard through the, um, through the grapevine that there were folks on the military side who were really struggling to do planning um, and future planning around training events and deployments and how do we deal with, you know, this risk to mission, which mission is like, you know, what sort of security, um, you know, different security situations is the military responding to, uh, how do we balance that with the risk to our force or, you know, the risk of having an outbreak in one of our units? And, you know, what it came down to was, is where's everybody going to and from? Where are we sending them? You know, what is the overall incident rate? Um, And so we ended up launching a a COVID risk tool uh, for the Air Force for a specific customer and, you know, a very, very large customer and essentially looking at, okay, if we do these different, you know, personnel movements, what is the risk that, you know, this group will have COVID? Like, what is the the incidence rate? And so basically it tells them, yep, if you bring these 2,000 people together, um, you know, these 2,000 specific people from each of these locations, it visualizes all of that. It shows, you know, here's how everybody's getting there. Um, and then says, you know, you're going to have five people, uh, you know, statistically, you're going to have five people that are arriving infectious. And then they can make decisions about here are the different procedures we're going to have in place uh, at this training event or on this deployment to make sure that that COVID doesn't spread across the forest. And so that was, you know, something that we didn't expect to work on. Um, But we were really excited to see just how extensible what we had built was. Um, You know, we did have to bring on, we brought on a data scientist who, you know, Geosite has its own epidemiological models now um, because some of the best models, you know, people stopped supporting them a couple months ago because it's a lot of work um, to build out these models. 
And so, you know, the fact that we were able to say, okay, let's import the COVID incident rate of every county in the U.S. into our platform and then, you know, geolocate all of these different people and say, here's where they all all are and here's where they're all going. And then let's look at the COVID risk. That was a really interesting analysis problem that, you know, we didn't expect to do with the platform. So that's fun. We also um, have worked on the search and rescue platform for the U.S. So if you're hiking or you're in a small plane and there's an incident and you're, you know, your plane crashes or if you get lost in the woods and you have one of those personal locator weekends, um, you know, right now that data goes into a Excel spreadsheet. Um, so you could imagine. I'm just laughing. I'm laughing in a very scary way. Like <laughs> my stress weekend is in an Excel spreadsheet now. That's it. Yeah, I mean, okay, so I have to give the the controllers a ton of credit. They have the most exquisite Excel spreadsheet I've ever seen. Uh, and they do really great work. Jess's dream. With their Excel it spreadsheet. Excel spreadsheet. It, is, it is a beautiful, beautiful spreadsheet. Um, however, uh, if you think about the idea of search and rescue, probably a spatial platform where you can like, get updates and like actually see what's going on might be a better tool. Um, So that's, that's a project that we've worked on. Um, You know, of course we do, we have a methane emissions tracking and response tool. Um, And then of course the one Laurel that that you guys are using, which we call geosite core, which is just mostly visual spectrum data. Um, So satellite or drone imagery, things like that. Um, And so it's, it's really exciting. We have other applications on the horizon, Um, you know, and our hope is, you know, someday we open it up to third-party developers even, right? So we've we've built this platform and these baseline functionalities and modules. Um, and if you think about it, a lot of these problems are, are similar. It's monitoring or it's responding to crises. Uh, and you can do that in every industry. And I, I'll make the plug as well as like, I'm, we're, Jess and I are stakeholder capitalists. And the fact that the Geosite platform right now functions better when there's more collaborators on it so me as a customer, I get to invite some, invite the um, regulators and some of the people that assess liabilities for my project, invite them to use the platform at no fee. Yeah. And, and that to me blows everyone else out of the water because the first thing that my public agency, lead agencies in my projects ask is like, well, how are you going to, you know, reimburse us the fee for our time and materials? Blah, 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 and we start going down this rabbit hole. And so like you, the efficiency I've learned in my stakeholder engagement meetings with them, the first thing I say is geosite is mine. I've paid for it. It's free for you to use. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and that's a piece of it. Like to us from day one, we were like, people like people need to be able to collaborate. Like to us, that was so important. And so from day one, we were like, we will never be per seat based. Our cost of goods is on a per square mile basis and on like a data consumption basis. So we're going to charge on that. And they can have as many people or as few people as part of, you know, that project as they want. Um, and, you know, it the whole per seat model doesn't make any sense anyway to me. Like I, it's, it's a oversimplified way of saying we're going to charge you more for the exact same product just because your company's bigger than, you know, the other folks. Even though, you know, when when software is on CDs, it doesn't cost them that much more to print more CDs. Uh, but it's just it's a proxy for company size. And so we wanted that um, we wanted the value to scale uh, separate from the cost. Um, and that's worked out really, really well because for people like you, you're like, yeah, I can share it with all my stakeholders. And then what's really great for Geosite is that creates network effects because then other people are like, oh my gosh, this was so nice. Can we force all these other people to use this too? Um, and we're like, yes, please do. <laughs> that's why I love you said you're building value. It's not just on the price. It's, yeah. Thank yeah. you for for really sharing that. We've we've gone over our allotted time, but yeah. I I feel like we, we need like version two, three, four, five, like volume two, three, four, five with you on here. Um, so we'll, we'll wind down. Justin, did you have another question you want to ask before we wind down? Okay. No, I say it's self-imposed a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, the last, oh, okay. So finish this sentence for us. Wouldn't it be cool if. Hmm. Oh, there's so many good ones. Wouldn't it be cool if female founders got more than 3% of venture capital every year? 
Thank you. Three percent, guys. Three percent. Like, come on. Or maybe I should have phrased it as, wouldn't it be cool if, like, it wasn't the fact that 97% of capital goes to male founders? Yeah. (sighs) (laughs) I mean, three is a great number. I love it. It's a magical number, but it's too low in this case. Give us your... (laughs) Give us your three-point landing, what you want our audience to walk away with today. Um, The first thing would be know what it feels like to be an expert and know when you're, you know, you are the expert and when you're not. I think that's, that's a really important one. The next is to make sure you know what problems you care about and focus all your efforts on solving those problems rather than on specific, you know, uh, accomplishments or checkboxes that you think matter, right? Because those matter far less than the problem you're solving. Uh, and the last would be um, to know what drives you, like know what, you know, is the thing that you'll stay up at night thinking about and charge after that, you know, not just in your personal life, but professionally too, because if you are obsessed with something, you're very likely going to become the best at it um, because you you can't stop, you know, researching it and learning more. Great advice. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Send it, Jessa. Thanks for listening and visit astellar.co. That's A-S-T-E-L-L-A-R.co for reference materials from the podcast and to connect with Jessa and Laurel. Foxhole Studios specializes in audio production and can work remotely to meet your audiovisual needs whether you live in San Diego or not. Getting a podcast started? Contact the team at info at foxholestudios.com for any and all inquiries.